0: that we might grow to be complete in christ i was sitting in my family room as i wrote this commentary shocked and so very sad the television was full of reports coming from that school in connecticut where a gunman had killed twenty six people in the middle of the day It was an elementary school. Everybody's been talking about it. I believe the children were kindergarten age, 16 of them slaughtered, now 20, I think, without cause. No justification. How could this be? Kindergarten students, children only just beginning their school years, in the prime of their life, years ahead to grow up and make their mark on the world into which they have been born, but no longer dead. My heart was broken a mental image of this tragedy flashing across my mind's eye. I I could not really find a way to fully enter into the shock and the grief and the unbelievable sorrow of the parents of those children who were killed. Their lives will never be the same again. What a terrible Christmas they're going to have. And as I listened, there were many who expressed their feelings of outrage and sympathy at what had happened. There were no words to fully explain what happened and why. Can you imagine the panic and the desperation of those parents, At home and at work when they received the news of the tragedy and knew their children were at that school. Arriving frantically at the school amid the confusion and the police and the ambulances desperately trying to determine if their child was safe. Some finding their child alive and, of course, others hearing the worst possible news, their child dead. Why? unquestionably the single most asked question was why. Why was my child killed? Or alternatively, thank God, my child was spared this time. Some would be asking why my child was spared while Mrs. Jones over there, her child is dead. Then comes the guilt for being one of those whose child was spared and the anger that your child was killed. Such a flood of emotions, months, even years of grieving and sorrow to come seared consciousness, broken lives. I'm sure some will ask, where was God in all of this? How could a loving God allow innocent five, six, seven-year-olds to be so brutally murdered? How does one deal with such a tragedy?
1: You said you'd come And share all my sorrows You said you'd be there For all my tomorrows I came so close To sending you away But just like you promised You came here to stay, I just had to pray. Your goodness so great, I can't understand. we I give you my heart and my soul. I know that without you, I'd never be whole, Savior. You've opened all the right doors, and I thank you, and I praise you. From earth's humble shores Jesus, I'm yours Jesus said, come to the water Stand by my side I know you are thirsty
0: the screen as several pictures flashed across my screen. The one image that burned itself indelibly on my heart was that of a woman, obviously a mother or a sister, running across the schoolyard with the unmistakable look of sheer terror on her face while speaking on a cell phone. This has become one of the icons that they continually show on the television when talking about this incident. Presumably she was being told that her child or her sister, apparently, was one of the victims. It must have been an unbelievable piece of news to hear. No, it can't be true. Please tell me. Not her. It was written all over her face, filled with terror. I wondered how many turned to God in that hour of need. As I've discussed in previous programs, people often turn to God in their personal crises. They ignore him and have little thought about God in their daily lives other than that. But let a crisis fall upon them. They suddenly want someone bigger than they are to help, to change the world, to take their tragedy away, to make it good again. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, to be the savior of all those who believe in him. Just at the right moment, we're told, when we were unlovely and undeserving, God sent Jesus to die, to become our redeemer. So where was God in this tragedy? Let me assure you, he was there in Newtown, Connecticut that day. He's everywhere because he's omnipresent and because he's God. He's involved in the world he made and he's involved in the lives of the people that he created, the ones for whom he died. But the good news is that not only did he die vicarious vicarious death for us, he also rose from the dead to bring salvation. But he allows us to make that choice. The world system is under the control of Satan and it too, the Bible says, groans under the influence of sin and it too awaits redemption, which will come one day when Jesus returns to claim his throne. So let me suggest that you hug your children a little tighter tonight, grateful that you still have each other in the face of all the tragedy around us throughout the world and most importantly, turn to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. And now with this message for today, here's our pastor,
2: Alan Lee. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, following our Christmas break, we will continue with our study of 1 John, picking up at chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. This is a very beautiful passage in which the Apostle John deals with the certainties of the Christian life. He deals with things a believer can know for sure without a shadow of a doubt now if you recall last time we looked at the certainty of possessing eternal life and the certainty of answered prayer however we saw that both carries a condition the certainty of the possession of eternal life is conditioned upon our having jesus christ and the certainty of answered prayer is conditioned upon our asking according to the will of God. John teaches that if these conditions are met, then the consequences are certain, but the conditions must be met. They are conditional promises, not automatic or our inherited right. And so today we want to continue our study with verses 16 and 17, in which John gives an illustration of, of how God only answers prayer that is in keeping with his will. Now, this is another one of those very difficult passages in John's epistles, and there are several of them. It is also a very solemn passage. It deals with the sin unto death and the sin not unto death. Listen to the words of the apostle carried along by the Holy Spirit as I read them from the New International Version of the Bible. Verse 16, quote, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sins does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. End of quote. The apostle first states that believers should pray for those believers who do not commit a sin that does not lead to death. He says we are to pray that God will give them life. Now this is where the problems in the passage begin to arise. If we take this to mean that we are to pray that God will not take the sinning believer home by death, meaning physical death, this simply does not make sense, because the sin is not a sin under death in the first instance. Yet, the apostle says, it is God's will to pray for a sinning brother or sister that God will give them life. On the other hand, if we take the term brother to refer to a non-Christian, which neither the context or the use of the word supports, the problem is still not solved. What is a sinner's sin unto death? How can the Christian identify it? The problem is in determining exactly what John means when he alludes to this sin. It is most likely, of course, that the believers to whom he was writing at the time knew exactly what he was referring to. But today, we do not have that first-hand advantage, of course. And as we shall see, I believe that this uncertainty is designed to encourage and motivate us to pray for one another at all times, in all situations. But now let's come to the even more troublesome issue of the sin that does lead to death, for which John does not encourage us to pray if we see it being committed by a brother. Several observations must be noticed. First, this is a concrete example of a sin a believer is not encouraged to pray for. It will not be answered. Now you can name it, you can claim it, and you can speak to it all you want but God will not answer the prayer of a believer for someone who has or is committing this sin that leads to death. Second, whatever this sin is, it can be seen, it can be observed, we can know it when we see it. Third, this sin does in fact lead to death. Fourth, we may conclude quite confidently then that John is talking about Christians because of his use of the word brother in the passage. And he does so without any other clarification. For instance, when he speaks of his own natural relationship to those of the Jewish race, he calls them brethren according to the flesh. That's a phrase he uses in Romans 11 verse 1, for instance. But he never refers to the unsaved as brethren without such clarification. Christians, then, Are the ones who can commit this sin unto death. Now, this helps us to get a better understanding of the kind or nature of the death that is meant in the sin that is unto death. Since a Christian is being referred to, then the death described here must be physical death and not spiritual death. This is so because John has just finished emphasizing that a genuine Christian can know without a doubt that he has eternal life. He gave us a long description of that, an explanation of that in the chapters we had previously studied. And so John is referring to what we may call sin unto physical death, for the believer will never again face spiritual death because of the penalty of sin. He has eternal life. So we can know for certainty then that John is referring to believers and that this death has to be physical death. Now, John goes on to say, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. Now, this would mean that the believer is not encouraged to pray for such a sin, whatever it is. John does not specifically command that the believer pray for it, but he says he certainly is not recommending it. We now have the problem of identifying this sin that leads to death. We need to know what it is so that we don't spend time agonizing in prayer for a sin which God will most likely not answer positively. Some examples of sins unto physical death committed by Christians include, for instance, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's why it's important for us to understand what that unworthy manner refers to in the passage, because it can lead to physical death. In First Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks of believers being taken away through death by God because they refuse to examine themselves properly before coming to partake of the Lord's table, and thus they partake in an unworthy manner. And some are said to be sick or sickly, and that's referring again to physical illness, physical illness. Uh, Illnesses because of sin that is unconfessed and not dealt with. It's a very serious thing to consider when we come to observe the Lord's table. But now there's another one. There's an incident in Acts chapter 4 and also Acts chapter 5 concerning Ananias and Sapphira. This is another example of a Christian sinning unto physical death. In this instance, it is lying against God the Holy Spirit. How? How? by refusing to give God what was committed or pledged to him and then lying about it. We may legitimately call this the sin of financially robbing God in one form or another, especially if it has been committed. In other words, if we had committed something to God and we refused to give it to him, or we only give a portion of what we did, saying that we're giving all of it. Peter goes so far as to say, that that is a sin against the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is a sin against God himself. Now, some would also include the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, described in Matthew 12 as a sin unto death. However, I do not believe this specific sin fits into the category here. The unpardonable sin, in my understanding of the Scripture and the context, can only be committed by non-Christians, in particular, at that time, Jews, And in actuality, according to the historical context, it cannot be committed exactly as it was committed in Jesus' day simply because he is not physically and personally manifested at this time in our life. And so we cannot ascribe to him the power of the devil as the source of his miracles, as the Jewish people did. And when you read that in Matthew chapter 12, You'll see that that's the point where Jesus turns away from the Jewish nation as a whole because they have used up, as it were, eliminated their opportunity of accepting the Messiah because they said that the miracles he formed to show that he was the Messiah was not performed by the power of the Spirit of God but rather by the power of the devil. Jesus then turned away and went to the Gentiles. It's a very significant passage. But the context of John's epistle with which we are now concerned seems to intentionally leave the identification of the sin and the death unclear, perhaps indicating that it would be identified as such by the Holy Spirit to a believer when it is observed in the life of a sinning Christian. For instance, if God himself has imposed the death sentence upon a believer because of a sin, no matter how much we pray for that believer, he will not be healed. And we're saying here, the Spirit of God will seem to be the one who will identify for us exactly when these cases arrive. This seems to be the thrust of John's conclusion of his teaching on the certainty of answered prayer. Notice what he says in verse 17, All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, John is saying two things here. First, all sin is significant and carry corresponding consequences. Second, although there is a sin by believers that leads to death, there's a wide scope of intercessory prayer on the part of believers for one another that God does answer. And we are, therefore, to pray to him to answer these prayers. But the problem still remains. We cannot positively identify this sin under death mentioned by John. We can guess and speculate and examine the scriptures, but we cannot be 100% absolutely certain. The only thing we can say for sure is that John uses the examples here to illustrate the truth that God hears and answers prayers that are in keeping with his will. The prayers that are not in keeping with his will He will not answer no matter how long we pray, no matter how much we fast, no matter how much we weep. God will not answer certain prayers, prayers that are not in keeping with his will. Believers then are to pray for other believers who fall into sin and the sin does not lead to death. And perhaps because we may not be able to determine exactly what the sin is, we are to pray for one another more earnestly. It is at this time that we experience, I believe, the special ministry of the Spirit described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. Listen to these powerful words in the context of not being able to discern what the sin unto death is. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, Listen to these words now. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, Paul says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a magnificent passage of scripture. This is a magnificent promise. What a motivation to pray, even when we don't really know what to pray for. And by the way, he's talking about what we should pray for, not how we should pray. The Spirit of God who indwells the believer, then himself, takes the things that we feel in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirit, in our souls, that we cannot voice, that we do not know about, and he then himself formulates the prayers and puts it in the words that God understands. This is a tremendous passage of Scripture. The Holy Spirit himself prays in us and for us. I say again, this is truly the basis for the certainty of answered prayer when we know that the Spirit of God is praying on our behalf. Now, next time, Lord willing, we will conclude this chapter, chapter 5, with the Apostle John's teaching concerning the certainty of the believers' victory over sin and Satan. But until then, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think, and act on these things.
0: Address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as Echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon.
3: There forevermore to stay command his promise he will surely come again happening along